Hello, it's Thursday 28th of July. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowerman and I will be discussing the outlook for travel and tourism across the region with our special guest, Liz Ortiguerra, CEO of the Pacific Asia Travel Association, or PATA. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So today we're approaching the ongoing travel recovery from a Pan-Asia Pacific perspective with our special guest, Liz Ortiguerra. Liz took on the high profile position of CEO of PATA in May 2021. And as part of her role, she is regularly interviewed in the media and is a frequent conference and webinar speaker on travel and tourism issues across Asia Pacific. So Liz, thanks very much for coming onto the show today. How are things with you and how's Singapore today? Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I was just in Bangkok two days ago and now I'm back in Singapore. Um, As you know, volumes are ramping up in both destinations. So we all have cautious optimism. Um, STB's forecasting IVAs to reach 6 million in 2022 after seeing 1.5 million in the first half of this year. So, you know, we're looking forward to uh, a ramp up in the balance of the year. And I describe the policies in both places as learning to live safely in the context of the pandemic. Um, Some precautions are still in place, like wearing masks indoors and testing before events. In this part of the world, vaccinations, masks, targeted testing, all measures that I think um, will help us have a sustained recovery and limit loss of life with this ongoing pandemic. So I've had travels into the Middle East and U.S. over the last nine months, and it's interesting to see the contrast in cultural nuances in policies. The science is the same across borders, but the politics and economics um, and how it's interpreted are different. So that's a fantastic platform for the discussion we're going to have uh, ahead in the next 30 minutes or so, Liz. But let's take a a step back first. Let's look at your career. And you have a a stellar educational background. You, You studied at New York University and then undertook an MBA at Columbia and did the Stanford uh, Executive Program. Was travel a career path that you always wanted, even during your studies? Oh, thank you for saying that. But I think of it as more like a bad habit in liking classrooms. I'm a big believer in um, lifelong learning, but you can learn from all different sources and it doesn't need to be a classroom. And travel is one of the most immersive forms of education. So my career has definitely been convoluted and the, the road less traveled, but you know, more personal and interesting for me. I was actually a scientist engineer in my first career in pharma. And then I was with American Express for 18 years. And then I went into the startup world. So I think you know that, and it was right for each stage of my life. And it led me to travel. And you know, as many people know, once you're in travel, it's hard to get it out of your system. Everyone is a, a sum total of their lifelong experiences. So I feel like, you know, those experiences definitely still contribute to, you know, how I view travel and, and this role today. I love that. Yeah. Once you get in travel, it's hard to get out. Definitely. Um, so you just mentioned um, you were at American Express um, and you were, you know, you became the regional GM. Tell us more about that role. I mean, I imagine you had to travel a fair amount for that. Um, It was a really interesting role, and I treasured the opportunity to work for a global multinational, but with these specific markets in a developing region. And um, I ran Amex's travel partner network 
um, for Asia Pacific, which meant managing the top TMCs and travel agencies in the region who were representing Amex across 28 different countries. So I didn't get to travel to all 28 in that time frame, but I ran a lot of regional conferences that brought the markets together. My travel partners covered corporate, leisure, and mice. They were flexible, innovative, and really committed to upholding the Amex standards. So I gained a deep appreciation for, you know, the various types of travel that are delivered in the different markets. And then after American Express, you did various things, including working for an ed tech firm in Singapore. And then you founded Bridge Experiences in 2019. Tell us a bit more about Bridge. What does it do and who do you work with? So Bridge is just my own private limited consulting company, and it enabled me to work with those startup firms and others. Plus, I had a, a passion project that I started before COVID, and it was to do social impact travel education. So I was starting to run corporate and university and educational trips into the Philippines, and I planned for Bali to basically teach people about SDG needs and solutions being delivered through NGOs and social enterprises. So really, you know, an immersive form of education about some of the world's biggest needs and the solutions that are happening on the ground. That sounds fascinating. And so you then took the role on of CEO of Pacific Asia Travel Association, PATA, um, last May 2021. That was a pretty fraught time for the travel industry in the region, kind of a baptism of fire? It was, but I'm one of those crazy people who would run towards a challenge versus away from one. And um, and I'm, I've always been a big believer in um, the great things that travel can deliver, you know, in terms of bringing down barriers and um, poverty alleviation, you know, and I could see it. I could see it. I, and I still see it today. I think the Asia Pacific will continue, will once again become the engine for growth, both inbound and outbound. And um, there's so much that this sector does, and it touches so many industries. So for me, it was a strong call to action to figure out how in a time of crisis, we could be of the most support for the most impacted sector in the pandemic. You know, we're still evolving this based on the complexities of this recovery, but I see opportunity every day, every week. Our listeners will be familiar with Pater as a high profile across the travel industry, but they may know less about how it actually operates. So Liz, tell us a bit more about how Pater works, how it bridges the private and the public sectors, and how many countries and territories does it actually encompass? Well, first of all, I was I was a relative newcomer to Pata before I took this role. So, so it's been a fast education for me. And I've spoken with hundreds of people, you know, about the history of Pata. We've even got a history book on it, published on it. Um, And even coming from American Express GBT, I continue to be impressed with the Pata ecosystem and network. It spans the full spectrum of the travel sector from governments to startups, universities to MNCs. And um, while I know it was even bigger when it was the only association in, in APAC for travel, Um, since many have since been spawned, it's still really diverse and vast. Um, We have 40 NTOs, not just in Asia Pacific, but also in Europe and uh, West Asia or the Middle East. And we've got 80 destinations in all. Um, But I think the strength is bringing in, bringing together uh, the various players. And we've got such an amazing collective knowledge within our network that it's um, a, a powerful thing. And I think it's something that can be so enabling and supportive, particularly during a, a recovery like this. 
So you were just talking about how um, you know Pata has this big collective knowledge. How is Pata kind of using that and really looking to support its members um, throughout the pandemic? You know, so we all know tourism industry is one of the the hardest hit industries. You started last year. May 2021, right in the middle of this Delta wave. What kind of initiatives did PARTA undertake to support its members through that? And now also through this kind of up ramping up of uh, tourism recovery? When I started um, last year in June, within a month, I'd put in place an eight point plan of initiatives to support our members in the broader industry. And this continues to evolve based on you know the, the the critical needs. And I'll mention just a few here. Um, first, my predecessor early last year, Pata launched the Crisis Resource Center with playbooks for various industries in travel at various stages of the crisis and recovery. So many of those playbooks, they're, and they're online and free on our website, many of these playbooks continue to be relevant as we emerge and recover through, through this staged uh, uh, recovery. Last year in July, um, I started an informal government-only forum partnering with World Bank. Um, I saw the need to create a forum for governments to do more learning share. And I'm a believer that in crisis, you absolutely need more collaboration than competition. So during these sessions, we, we, we have um, destinations or industry experts share their best practices and, and what they experienced to help everyone um, accelerate the learning. And third, through the year, we've really ramped up the number of our own forecasts and research insights, leveraging our wealth of industry experts from the various consultancies and MNC partners across the region. Everyone is trying to piece together their own crystal ball to best find opportunities as we navigate what really feels like an obstacle course that has multiple factors in play, you know, whether it's um, uh, geopolitics geopolitics or it's the ramp up of connectivity and capacity you know there are a number of factors that we need to navigate but there are opportunities and that we're trying to give you the best information possible to come up with your own hypothesis and find those opportunities and then lastly you know i should mention i'm really happy to be partnering with both of you on the apac travel recovery dashboard and that gives the most up-to-date status of our destinations as they reopen. You know, there's a real need to have clear communications so that, you know, we can welcome back the inbound. We look a little bit further forward, Liz. The, the role of any CEO whenever you uh, enter any kind of organization or business is to identify the challenges ahead, slightly setting aside COVID, looking at the business itself, how it operates. What, what would you say that you've identified about, about PATA? What does it do well? Where can it operate better and more efficiently? I look at any challenge as a coupled with an opportunity, um, especially with the impact of the pandemic. Our resources as PATA are, as a nonprofit, are very limited. Um, I'm currently hiring for a number of roles, so I would tell people to please check our social media and website if you're looking for a job that has a lot of purpose and meaning. Um, I'd say the heart of Pata's core strength through the 71 years it's been around is its strength in community and its ability to translate global issues into local impact. Pata, it's not necessarily about the big stage. It's about the on the ground tangible impact. Um, so fair to say it's going through an evolution right now, like all organizations, but I'm committed to keeping it focused on its core mission 
of catalyzing responsible travel and tourism. So we're advocating for the good in travel and capturing the huge potential for APEC in a healthy, sustainable way. So Asia Pacific, both inbound and outbound, is the engine for growth globally. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree with that. And so as travel does start to recover across APEC, have you seen any unifying opportunities or or challenges that, you know, face the whole of APEC or bits of both? I'd say that we're trying to restart human activities despite this ongoing evolving challenge of the pandemic. This isn't a post-pandemic era. It's ongoing and it's evolving. You know, I have a very healthy respect for, you know, what the scientists and the health professionals are dealing with. You know, it really is something that's not, I know people want to put it behind them and say it's over, but it's really just evolving. And um, this is our unifying challenge. So destinations across our region have, I I think have laid a great foundation to embracing vaccines and health and safety measures. Um, Here in Asia Pacific, it's not as much a political issue as in the West. I think the focus is more on the science and the community safety. But I think what we can do as an opportunity is to do a better job of making protocols more clear and customer friendly. I think every destination should be looking at the customer journey and the steps needed to travel across borders, you know, now that we've been able to generally open up. And maybe the one other challenge I would, you know, still express is there are still markets that are under-vaccinated. You know, last year I came out along with a few other global travel colleagues on vaccine equity. And um, there are approximately 2.5 billion people that still haven't had a first vaccine. And, you know, we're sitting in markets where we're so privileged to be able to have, you know, one and two boosters. Um, So I think that's something that we shouldn't forget. You know, we can't leave these markets behind. We can't leave these people behind unprotected. That leads beautifully into the next question, Liz, because as you said, we're going to have to be living with the the evolution of this virus for years to come, uh, at least. Um, But that doesn't mean that the travel industry won't itself evolve and change. Now, we noticed that PATA has started to host in-person events once more. And I guess that's one of the trickiest aspects of the travel industry is actually gathering people together en masse once again. So how will PATA manage these events in future? Will they be different in future compared to what they were pre-pandemic? Yes, I'm really excited to be having our first in-person event actually next week in Songkla, Thailand. And then we'll do, we're doing uh, an event in Ras Al Khaimah just outside Dubai in October, and then a collaboration with GBTA in Bangkok. Will they be different? Well, first of all, I told my team that when we design these events, I don't want people to feel like uh, they're sitting in a dark room listening to panelists the same way that they could on a Zoom. You know, we've had two and a half years of that. Um, and so what's really key is... Um, particularly is the time in between the big stage, you know, the chance for great human interaction, the great, you know, building of relationships, experiences, and, you know, in these destinations. So, uh, you know, I'm really excited that we're, we're able to build that into our Songkla event and also Rasa Kaima, um, you know, because there's nothing sadder than going to a conference and then being locked in a, you know, a windowless room for, two or three days. <laughs> you know, that's, to me, that's not a travel conference. Um, you need a sense of place. So that said, I think that having a sustained travel recovery and doing these events also means, you know, respecting the science and um, putting in the right guidelines that protect everybody. You know, so here in Asia, we're still wearing masks. You know, I know, I know that 
a number of the, the countries here still do require masks indoors and um, as well as uh, targeted testing. And, um, you know, there is ready access for um, vaccinated travelers. Um, and I can see that continuing. Yeah, I mean, you, you make such a, a good point there. Nothing sadder than going to a darkened room, windowless room for days on end. Yeah, I mean, and I think like you're right. It's such an opportunity now. And I think that having everyone has only been communicating you know, online for so long that there is a real buzz when you get everybody together in the same room. People are almost more interested in that opportunity, right? That that informal, casual networking opportunities that you just can't have around a around a Zoom webinar. It's about those connections and that's what travel is all about, isn't it? It's about connections. Absolutely. It's it's the human connections and it's the sense of place and the experiences. So Pata covers a huge territory and like you were saying, you know, there's these different same science but different reactions to this and also different speeds of recovery. Um, so within the region that Pata covers, which countries do you see rebounding faster and which are perhaps slower than you expected? Oh, I, I'll have to be diplomatic and say I think the ones that stay the most agile and tap into uh, the new and available source markets will expedite their recovery. Um, I also think the ones that continue um, communicating, you know, Maldives was a great example last year where they continued communicating even through, you know, the strictest lockdown period. And so people kept dreaming of the Maldives and uh, keeping your destination top of mind is really important. And I would also probably add that rebounding quicker isn't necessarily better because we've seen some examples in the other regions of markets that opened opened up completely and thought the pandemic was behind them and then had to you know put in more restrictions you know i am a believer that i mean i think sustain we'd all like a sustained recovery you know um i think we're all a bit skittish on some level about things opening and closing again that's the worst thing that could happen and so i think that um risk management um, a good measured reopening is much better than kind of throwing caution to the wind. And again, on the, the same subject of recovery, Pata recently released its APAC visitor forecast through 2024. Tell us about some of the different scenarios, because as somebody who actually is involved in quite a lot of statistical modeling around travel and tourism, I know that at the moment there are huge challenges about predicting anything beyond even next week. Predicting into 2024 is difficult right now, isn't it? Um, it is, but I have to say one of the core strengths of Pata has also been its forecasting. And part of that is it's, you know, it's, it's based in solid data from our, you know, 39 government partners in, from various destinations. And so last year I made the decision that our APAC visitor forecast should be done more frequently than annually. Um, so now it's done every quarter. Um, so our forecast methodology is done with, in partnership with HKPU and has remained very accurate, in part because we have that solid data from our destinations. And um, plus, given the multiple factors at play, you know, we, we publish a mild, moderate and severe impact scenario. As you know, anything can happen, you know, within three months. Um, so that's important. And, you know, as we know, things can even change week to week. So. One of the underappreciated um, Pata benefits for members is actually our data platform called Pata Empower. 
And this consolidates um, aviation data from OAG, hospitality data from STR, and our NTO data and forecasts. And so that's something that they can tap into with real-time data and play with the numbers and look at the statistics. So I've heard, you know, even small business members rave about this, you know, because it's um, really useful, particularly at a time like this, where we need up-to-the-minute data and forecasting. Yeah, absolutely. I've played around with it and there's loads, loads of statistics in there. And I mean, and I think that there are so many websites and platforms that are giving um, free data for tourism business owners. It's just um, difficult for them sometimes to know where to find all of that. Yeah. And I think it's important to also, you know, listen to the interpretation of that from the experts, you know, because it's one thing to access the data, but it, it's also important to, you know, to hear, you know, how they read into it. You know, um, and so that's what we've tried to do in, in through webinars and um, uh, public sessions like this. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Yeah, it's, um, especially if you're not so uh, data driven, right? <laughs> you need that kind of context around it. Um, so we have seen the appointment of two female non-Caucasian CEOs to regional travel organizations over the past year. You to Pata and Catherine Jamier-Hamel to Destination Mekong, which I'm really thrilled about. Um, how important is it for diverse representation within these kinds of tourism organizations? Oh my gosh, it's important for all organizations. You don't know how many times I've been uh, invited to a panel and I'm the only Asian in Asia for a leadership webinar and um, the only female. So I just learned that one of the biggest corporate sustainability initiatives launched by UN Global Impact is to say no to all male panels, which I think is interesting. Diversity helps everyone. You know, the research has shown that business decision-making is better when you've got diversity. You know, we need to um, lead that, particularly as associations, you know, we bring together all of these corporates, you know, in forums or, or government organizations. So, you know, I think it's um, important that we are a reflection of the diversity that should be in our member organizations. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I get so cross when I see um, all male panels as well, <laughs> all male white panels discussing travel in Asia. Yeah. Well, one journalist friend told me she refuses to moderate uh, you know, if it's an all-male panel. So, so it, is a, it is a policy and a commitment that a number of corporates have signed and organizations. As the only male of, amongst the three of us, I can agree that diversity and inclusion are hugely important issues going forward. Also, so are climate change, environmental protection, and deplasticizing the planet. These are real issues that travel and tourism is going to have to address immediately, not just in the future. How can Pata take a lead in these areas? Um, well, first of all, I'm a big advocate for all of that. I think that um, sustainability in the past might have been a pillar for Pata and other organizations, but you know, I'm making sure it's integrated in everything that we do. So, you know, all, you know, whether it's um, destination tourism destination management, you know, we launched a tourism destination resilience online training program that's open to all governments at the national, provincial, and city level, um, as well as uh, private enterprise. And, you know, that really looks at, you know, if we are going to develop travel, what are the vulnerabilities, what are the resiliencies and, and the areas for capacity building across various pillars that we need to, to put in place, either in existing destinations or new ones? 
Um, we've issued some reports and guidelines around plastic reduction, plastic elimination, or waste reduction. Um, so I'm a big advocate for making sure that you know this stays front front and center. But it's also not just in making pro- proclamations, like I mentioned. It's for Pata. It's really about showing how it can be implemented, sharing those practice practices that really help us put it in place. And, you know, I think that's really important. Yeah, exactly. I think everybody is talking about sustainability nowadays, but you really need to also take businesses by the hand and show them how they can implement this in a practical way. Yeah, talking is one thing, doing is another. (laughs) And I'll I'll share another funny conversation I had with a, a GM, hotel GM friend, and he said to me, when I asked him about his sustainability program, he said to me, you know, my kids who are, you know, in their early 20s, ask me the toughest questions. They don't just ask me, did I eliminate plastic bottles? They'll ask me, have you put in a reverse osmosis uh, waste treatment process? <laughs> you know, so, you know, we need to do this for the next generation and ourselves. You know, we're, we're seeing the impacts of climate change right now. And it's concerning you know so it's our our duty and our our role to contribute to a solution yeah that, that's a really important point isn't it Liz because we do tend to obviously in the industry become very very supplier centric in terms of how we can create these uh, climate change and environmental protection measures but you know the traveler demand young consumers in particular as you mentioned there they're very very savvy about what needs to be done and how quickly it needs to be done and there's gonna be a lot of pressure from travelers themselves isn't there to to move this at a quicker pace? Oh, well, there's a raft of research studies coming from all different sources that basically shows the rise of the conscious consumer. And it corporates are putting it into policies that you need to have a, you know sustainability measures and practices in place in order to win bids. And consumers are saying, I want a better managed destination. I want to see that the community is um, engaged and well-treated. You know, so um, and and this is very powerful, you know, because, you know, there's still a lot of old school thinking that climate change is not an issue. It's maybe tomorrow's issue or the next generation's issue. But, you know, when the, uh, the current and future buyers uh, have that strong a voice, you need to listen. Yeah, absolutely. So let's bring it back as we finished on, on a more personal level, Liz. What are your travel aspirations for the rest of 2022, you know, both personally and professionally? You know, I was just in this conversation with a friend yesterday about how, you know, we both felt so privileged to have traveled and seen as much as we already have. Um, so personally, it would be to see my family and friends more. You know, I went about two years without seeing my, my son, who's 21, and I don't want to go through that again. You know, we all want to keep those relationships and connections strong. And the other would be to incorporate wellness into my travels. You know, I think that that's a, a higher priority for me. And, and I think that's a very common feeling um, in uh, many travelers. And then I'd say professionally, it would be, um, I, I embrace the chance to catalyze more collaboration, both within and outside the region, so that we can all just expedite this recovery in a really sustained way. Um, and in a way that creates jobs, that expands financial inclusion, that celebrates, you know, local cuisines and the beauty of the destinations without depleting it. So I really look forward to, you know, finding new and new and better ways for us to continue to collaborate together. 
Nice. So on that positive note, um, that brings us to a close of this week's show. Thanks so much, Liz, for sharing your insights with us today. It's been super interesting to hear from Pata's point of view. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. So listeners, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed with Liz or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this interview with Liz, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each app. And please remember, if you do tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could give us a quick rating and a review, that will help other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today. And we'll both return next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. We look forward to talking to you then. Thank you.